You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas. And joining me as always from MMA Junkie in USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, how are you doing? Doing fantastic. How are we doing on Christmas shopping? As we record this, we're what, like uh, less than a week away, right? Christmas is on Ooh, Sunday, yeah. today's Monday, so six days or so. So you're saying I should probably get on that. Might want to. You might want to do that. You're uh, you're running up against the, the time when you could even have a delivery by Christmas. Okay. Now, see, I, I figure your wife's probably just taking care of all this as you totter through your carefree world of hockey and not writing and, and all that stuff. Am I right in, yeah. this, in assuming that? Uh, you know, I had to go through an elaborate process to try to, one, get my daughter the original thing she asked for, and then two, subtly manipulate her when I couldn't get that thing into thinking she wanted the thing that I could get. Still up in the air. We're going to see how that turns out. Psyops going on at Casa de Folks leading up to uh, Christmas. Can you give us any details? What was the thing? What did she want? Was it a horse? Because my daughter asked for a horse. Well, that would be tough. Uh, she asked for a snow white jammy dress, which I was unable to find in her size. And so then I found a different jammy dress, which I have been trying to convince her she might like better. What is it? What's the jammy dress? Uh, like Transformers? Yes. Yes, Chad. It's a Transformers jammy dress. I'm just you I'm trying it. to imagine in my mind what you would need to talk her into. Uh, it's a like a frozen thing, man. You know? Anna and Elsa? Yeah. That's who's in Frozen. Well, there's... I don't know if you've ever been to the store, but there are... It's not like you just have one choice. No, I in know. In terms of... It's of, basically uh, the only one we don't have yet. So, there you go. So, it's got like Olaf and Kristoff on it, or... Listen, man, I don't have to explain all this to you. My Christmas shopping is done. Once again... Where's the horse showing up, by this, the way? <laughs> man, if we had time to... I would describe the entire conversation, which uh, it ended with my daughter in tears about how she is going to grow up to fulfill her dream of being a quote-unquote horsey rider if we don't find some way to keep a live horse here at our our urban residence, our in-town, you know, corner lot residence. Well, it's good she gets used to having her dreams crushed. No so, horsey rider career for her. I'm going to go ahead and get started on building those stables anytime now. Once again, this episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast is brought to you by Fulton & Rourke, a men's grooming company that thoughtfully creates products based on the way guys get ready. Last week, right here on this very podcast, we announced Fulton & Rourke's new limited reserve fragrance, Captiva. Captiva which features notes of green citrus, wild rock, rose, and salt water. We also told you that as a part of the launch of that product, the first 1,000 customers to scoop up some Captiva. Captiva. Wait, wait, what are you doing? Captiva. You're going with like kind of a Ricola. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the it's first 1,000 customers will get will also receive a new version of Fulton & Rourke's refillable cologne containers. These ones in the color of gunmetal. 
Ben, what else? Lots else, Chad. As we mentioned before, Fulton & Rourke's Foamless Shave Cream was recently selected by GQ Magazine as part of its 2016 Grooming Award series. So that tells you all you need to know about that. They're also still featuring their new Dop Kit, a handy little travel bag, which is stylish yet rugged and engineered to military-grade specifications. Plus, there's a new Sitkin candle, which comes in a flat black porcelain container, offers 80 hours of burn time, and features notes of tobacco, vanilla, and ocean pine. It's a mind-blowing amount of goodness, uh, frankly, but don't take our word for it. See it all with your own two eyes. Just go to FultonandRourke.com. That's Fulton and R-O-A-R-K dot com and order today. We got music again this week from our old buddy, The Fifth Element, a music producer from Fort Worth, Texas. Thanks to him for uh, sending in those songs. And if you like what you hear, you can check him out at Facebook.com slash The Fifth Element, on Twitter at The Fifth Element, or on SoundCloud slash the fifth element official again that's the word the with the letter a and the number five in the fifth element and if it wasn't for the fifth element fort worth texas would almost never get mentioned on this podcast and as it is it gets mentioned almost every week fort worth stand up what (laughs) right sure Three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast in round number one, Sage and Paige are out. But now that Michelle Watterson and Mickey Gall are student body president and vice president, will we finally get that new copy machine in the library? And in round number two, California man calls it quits. We'll discuss the legacy of Uriah Faber. And in round number three, hold up. Did the UFC just create an entirely new division as some elaborate long con to let Ronda Rousey simultaneously hold two titles in two different weight classes? Because that's the most UFC thing of all time. All that plus, are you fucking kidding me? Just saying stuff and master tweet theater. But first, like we always do about this time. Let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from our buddy Vern Russell. He writes, I realize that you're going to spend a round on Sage Northcutt, but what are your thoughts to the fighters that reached out to him uh, to help round out his ground game? I know Michael Chiesa reached out and the Diaz brothers were hanging out as well. Discourse, please. Well, I think we can all agree that a situation in which the Diaz brothers take young Sage Northcutt under their wings up there in Lodi, that would be kind of the best thing that could happen to any of us, right? I mean, especially it would be the best thing that could happen to Fight Pass because there's no way you could ever create another like independent programming effort that would outdraw some shit like that. I was just going to say, we joke a lot about uh, coming up with original programming for the FightPass.com if there was not some kind of reality show where the Diaz brothers must instruct Sage Monroe Northcutt in the ways of the world just shut that fucker down because like you don't know what you're doing at that point. If this is a thing that happens and there's a meeting of those minds and you don't put that on your internet streaming service, I tell you what, I don't even know what to say. Chad Dunnis might even get fight pass. If there's a, a reality show featuring the Diaz brothers and Sage Northcutt. Oh, you would, you would be powerless against it. Can you imagine the episode where Sage Northcutt has to clean up the house because his dad's going to come visit? <laughs> Shit writes itself, man. Trying to get him to put away the bongs, trying to shove flowers into a bong so that it looks like a vase. Uh, maybe dad won't notice. This, like, in all seriousness, this speaks to one of the kind of awesome things about MMA, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, in that uh, all of these people, while, uh, ostensibly competitors with one another and while there are multitudes of bad blood and factions and constant 
you know, w- warring sides all over this sport. There's also like kind of a, a, I guess you would say traditional martial arts code of like honor and a willingness to help other people out. And I don't know if, if that does come from like a traditional martial arts background or just the uh, the background in mixed martial arts that not very many people have a lot of money. So that so there is this like tradition of coming together to to help each other out because that I must assume comes from like a, a weird place of all being into the same weird stuff and not being able to have like super camps. Well, that's a real generous interpretation on your part of what's going on here. You're assuming well, altruistic. I mean, motivations I mean it, it happens all the part. time. It well, happens all the time with different people. It it happens some of the time. But, you know, you don't see a whole lot of times when a dude on the prelims is exposed for having terrible wrestling and a bunch of people are popping up offering to help the dude out. Well, like, not publicly, but I bet it happens more than you think. I mean, I, it's impossible to not look at the situation and wonder what might these people be hoping to get for themselves by bringing the, the Sage Northcut show into their gym. Because, you know, I mean, it does happen sometimes where people, you know, they'll they'll help each other out, but they're way more likely to help out people or offer to help out people that they already know than they are to like just see a guy on TV and be like, I can help you. Come come see me. And a guy like him where, you know, obviously the the greatest asset he has right now is the attention that he brings with him anywhere he goes. Like skill wise, he doesn't seem to have a whole lot yet. So when I see a bunch of people saying, hey, you know, bring that guy to me, let me help him out. I wonder, are they just hoping to get some of the shine to rub off on them? And maybe, you know, if you really can help him out, then it looks good for you. I also, though, wonder, like, he would, I'm sure, benefit from training with guys like the Diaz brothers or Michael Chiesa uh, or whoever. But everything we've heard about Sage Northcutt makes it seem like there's a little bit of a stage parent thing going on with, with his dad, right? Like, it makes you wonder, is is that inhibiting his growth? as a fighter being trained by his dad. Well, like his dad just seems to keep a very tight control over where he trains for how long, what he does when he's there. We've heard it from a few different uh, sources. Now, a few di- from a few different gyms and saying like, he's, he's keeping things kind of on a, on a lockdown there, which makes you wonder if he's able to go out there and, and get exposed to some of this stuff that he would need to, in order to grow. I mean, yeah, I, I don't, I don't think it, I don't know that it always works out to have your parents in control of your training camp or to be in control in control of your training camp yourself. I think the thing that has stunted Sage Northcutt's growth more than anything else is being in the UFC. Uh, but I assume we will talk about that more in round one. I will reiterate that I think you're wrong about uh, people offering to have Sage Northcutt come train with them. I don't know that there is a real... Uh, pronounced way that that would benefit any of these people especially the diaz brothers like you think the diaz brothers are gonna get a little rub from having sage Northcutt in the room i i don't think so they get that i mean fight pass even, show maybe even they, they will even if they did put it on the fightpass.com i have no idea what they would stand to gain from that unless they're as the new guy in the house that sage Northcutt has to buy the weed for the next <laughs> month with the 60 g's he made at uh ufc on fox 22 that's how it works right i just think it happens more than you think People training with other people or people seeing people who are who may not even be have any notoriety, but seem to have some potential and being like, hey, man, come, come, come to our gym, come train with us. We'll figure this out. Chael Sonnen had Dong Young Kim live at his house, did he not? Isn't that who he, who he, or who was it that lived at Chael Sonnen's house? Yushin Okami. Oh, it was Okami. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. After they fought. 
right? right? But see, that's I'm saying like I, I do think it happens, but I think that usually the confederacies that are, are built, they're, they're based on something a little more organic than just seeing the dude on TV and being like, hey, man. I can help you. Come, come train with me. I, I don't think that happens that often in that situation. And just the Sage Northcutt situation is so weird altogether that you have to consider those possible motives. I mean, yeah, if you're Sage Northcutt, you should probably consider those motives. As for me, I'm inclined to take these people at face value for now. From Cameron Chapman, the next piece of li- listener mail, uh, he writes, I didn't see the walkouts, but did the bear Jew get to the cage tapping a bat in his hands? Because holy shit, if there's a bearded guy with an undecipherable Scottish brogue calling himself the bear Jew and wielding a bat on his walk-ins, then maybe the WME IMG era isn't so bad. Also, bat or no bat, he broke all of Henrique de Silva's shit. Please discourse this glorious bastard. Uh, so yeah, Ben, uh, Paul Craig gets a uh, uh, fairly... Memorable. I mean, I don't know if memorable, but a fairly impressive UFC debut uh, at UFC on Fox 22 this past Saturday. And frankly, as a 22 year or 29 year old uh, undefeated light heavyweight, I'll take that pretty much from anybody, let alone a guy with an awesome beard and a Scottish accent that makes him completely indecipherable in his post fight interview with Brian Stan. Yeah, I don't know if you saw that uh, when the junkie staff was attempting to go through and do you know the the wrap up on all the results and everything. And just trying to transcribe what he was saying in that interview proved very difficult. Like, we had to crowdsource it to other Scots out there who who could put it into words we can understand. Do you think that other Scots could explain to us why Paul Craig appears to have a Beach Boys quote tattooed on his chest? What's the quote? I believe it says, God only knows where I'd be without you. Is that what that says? I think so. It's really weird because it seems like, it almost seems like a tattoo that you wouldn't do yourself. Like that somebody put on you. Because it doesn't seem like, like somebody held Paul Craig down and tattooed him? Like there's no real flourish to it, right? It's just like a, like just words kind of stamped in there. It's not like a, like inside a big eagle's wings or some shit like no, that. No, but he also has some kind of like Egyptian pharaoh tattoo on his shoulder, right? Okay. Well, I think the, one of the questions that I have to wonder is, A, are we really doing this bear Jew thing? Can you really do that? Well, I think we need to talk about that. Like, we assume that the nickname is because Paul Craig resembles the character, the bear Jew in Inglorious Bastards, the Quentin Tarantino movie. Uh, question number one to ask, I think, is if Paul Craig is Jewish, right? I mean, it's Because if a... he is, you're in, you're in the clear as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, and if you're not, it's an awesome enough nickname that I would consider converting. <laughs> Indeed. Just to get everybody off your back about it. If you're not Jewish, then I think you're probably going to have a problem. But it does create a situation where, as we talked about before, what you have is a semi-jokey nickname, which is cool for getting you noticed right away, as your boy Beaston258 will attest. But it gets to a point where maybe you decide you want to be taken a little more seriously, and the, the type of notoriety that comes with, look at this crazy motherfucker's nickname, maybe gets old after a couple of years. Yeah, uh, I agree with that. Um, also, according to Sheridog, he hails from Coatbridge, Scotland, which, Scotland, are you trying to rival the fictitious country of Ireland for places that sound like they can't possibly exist? Coatbridge. Come on, man. That's just two words thrown together. Did you notice in the, the, the post or the, like, the pre-fight announcements how not excited to announce the bear Jew Bruce Buffer seemed? <laughs> His pronunciation of it was like he did it in the exact opposite way that he later did the karate hottie. 
Like when he said bear Jew, he was like the bear Jew, Paul Craig, just kind of like at least for Bruce, by Bruce Buffer standards. Like essentially coughing his yeah, way like through it. Glossed over it. It was the exact opposite of later when he said the karate hottie. Like he couldn't, <laughs> like he'd been waiting all night. Well, that was the main event, man. He's yeah. got to bring it for that. I guess so. Uh, but I thought. Uh, like, especially considering the light heavyweight division, the dire straits that you're in talent-wise there, 29-year-old Scottish high school teacher tapping fools out on the ground. As long as there's not some kind of anti-Semitic nickname going on there, I'm on board. Yeah, and the, at this point, very rarely seen in the UFC armbar submission. It's been pretty pulled, much all pulled, chokes. Pulled guard to get, for God's sakes. So, like, pretty confident. In his abilities off his back. Yeah. Uh, oh, nickname-wise, Henrique De Silva, Frankenstein. Did you notice that that dude actually looks a lot like a Brazilian Frankenstein? Like, if you just look at his face with the really, really pronounced cheekbones, you can see where he got the nickname. I don't You know, I, I kind of thought that, but then I also thought I could name at least three other Brazilian fighters who more resemble Frankenstein. Maybe it's just in his particular gym he looks the most like Francis. <laughs> okay. Well, there's next, something to that. Next question this week comes to us from Martin Gaufin, who writes, Please give your two cents on the tete-a-tete uh, between Dominic Cruz and Cody Garbrandt during the uh, UFC on Fox 22. Uh, Garbrandt has worst trash talk ever, and Cruz has best trash talk ever, question mark. Garbrandt just spatting gibberish, and then Dom Cruz is like, what are you talking about? Cracked me up! Exclamation. This is like a tweet that Sir Nigel would read. <laughs> Plus, Dom's trash talk might be too articulate. His foes don't understand him. Yeah, it's been pretty well established at this point that Dominic Cruz will embarrass you if you have to do some kind of trash talk segment with him. Just, I did a, a video about this, talking about this earlier today, and just, you shouldn't do it. Like, if you're a UFC bantamweight, don't do it. Like, just find a way to out of it or just spend the entire segment glaring menacingly at him. Yeah. Because the way he does it, like, he just makes you seem like you are stupid and that he, like, the way he keeps forcing people to explain how they think they're going to beat him and the explanations. Which is a good rhetorical strategy it if you're is. Dominic Cruz. Especially because by the time he's done with them, everybody's like, well, yeah, that sounds dumb, man. You're not going to beat him. Like, you even thought this through. On a on a UFC on Fox broadcast that was itself somewhat strange, like they were clearly trying a lot of new stuff out during this broadcast, some of which I thought worked and some of which didn't. This might have been the weirdest overall part. Not necessarily that you would put the the men's bantamweight champion and his next challenger out there for an interview uh, during this event to try to to you know prop up one additional angle to UFC 207 besides the return of Ronda Rousey. But, like, the fact that this thing just seemed to go on and on, and, like, they had to cut the audio from almost the first half of it. But it felt to me, and and basically John Anik, who's out there, most professional guy in the UFC, just pretty much gets out of the way. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And it, it was like... They gave these two guys an open mic and an unlimited amount of time, and were just like, <laughs> you've got the floor. Just go. Uh, also, the... The moment where Cody Garbrandt, and I did not get this part until I watched it on the uncensored video portion of it that we had on MMA Junkie, where he insists that he he hasn't chased pussy and he's not about to start now. 
on December 30th or whatever. And you're like, man, in your head, I bet that sounded so much cooler. Yeah. I bet you thought that was your, your nuclear option in this trash talk war. Then you, you bring it out and Dominic Cruz says, what are you talking about? <laughs> and Cody uh-huh. Garbrandt's response is, what are you talking about? And you're just like, man... This is where you wish, if you're Cody Garbrandt, you had an eject button that you could just push. See, I think your original point was well made, and who's letting Cody Garbrandt do this? Like, who is okaying this? Who on Team Garbrandt is saying, yeah, this seems like a good idea, national television, unlimited amount of time to just get roasted by Dominic Cruz? And you could tell from the very, I think it was the very first question that they asked Cody Garbrandt, how he was going to beat Dominic Cruz, or what was going to allow him to beat Dominic Cruz, and I believe his response was fate? No, that's like, I think that was Cruz maybe who who asked, or, or like I think that was one of the examples that he where he does that thing, where he asks like, what you think you're going to, how you think you're going to beat him or something. I don't know if it was John Anik or it was Cruz, but Cruz definitely jumped on that too. Because no, I think it was John I couldn't An- tell if he was saying fate or faith. One of those two things. Right. I think which, it was John Anik who asked Garbrandt that question, and as soon as he said it, I was like, oh, shit. Like, you basically, you just threw one underhanded down the <laughs> middle to Dominic Cruz because he's going to turn on this thing. Yeah. And he did. And as, as deservedly so. I mean, and I think also, like, it seems like we've heard maybe that line of reasoning from Cody Garbrandt before that he feels like he is predestined to be the UFC bantamweight champ, which also... I don't even really believe that you believe that because if so, then you wouldn't train, right? Like, what would be the point in preparing if you felt that it was written down in the book of the future somewhere, what's going to happen for you? And it would be kind of like totally unsatisfying if you were just fated to become the champion and you just showed up and all that happened. Um, but, I mean, I guess you must have some sort of actual plan for beating Dominic Cruz and maybe saying fate is your way of being like, all right, here's my master strategy for not you know, showing my cards too soon. I'll just say fate. Problem solved. I bought a house with the money I got from beating guys on your team. That's right. Was the uh, that was my favorite part. Yeah. If you hadn't, if you weren't falling out before that, whoo, you were after that. Last question this week comes to us from Richard Heise. He writes: The return of Ronda Rousey is less than two weeks away, and all the fight night commercials notwithstanding, I'm probably less excited about it than I thought I would be. That's because the once talkative and always visible Ronda Rousey seems eerily missing, save for an occasional TV st- uh, spot or ESPN interview talking about money not being important and sounding vaguely unhappy about the public eye. By the way, those fucking commercials with her don't count. Throw in Dana White and others saying she's near her end, and there just doesn't feel like much energy. It even feels a little somber. I don't know if I'd go so far as to say she's not into it, but given how little promotion she's doing and the UFC's lack of desire to push Amanda Nunes, it seems like they're just hoping the cat. I just scroll down there. I see. So, they're just hoping the casuals will fork up 60 bones because all caps, she's back. Am I just in an MMA bubble where the main eventers are nowhere to be found, or am I missing something that the mainstream is mega jacked? Uh, I kind of agree with this, like aside from the like mini movie that they continually replay where at the end you feel like Ronda Rousey's going to go down in the basement and flip on the lights and the Batman suit is down there and she's going to be like, I just got time for one more job or whatever. It just feels like a superhero sequel or like a Guns N' Roses video, a slightly more coherent Guns N' Roses video. Yeah, that too. Like someone's going to get thrown through a wedding cake yeah. at any moment. Next thing you know, she's going to stand out there on the range just wailing on a Gibson. Just walk out in front of a, a, a desert church. 
<laughs> start doing playing her guitar solo. Jump off that oil tanker. It does feel like there's now. I know that like in the new world of the UFC, things don't really heat up promotion wise until fight week. You know. Well, and we got Christmas standing between you and fight week here, so I can understand that. But this does feel like kind of a. Uh, a less high profile than I might have thought return for Ronda Rousey, at least to me thus far. Well, and it seems like this is always a harder date for the UFC than they think it's going to be. Because they want to do one at the end of the year, but they definitely don't want to do New Year's Eve. Like, they intentionally stay away from New Year's Eve. Right. This event is on Friday. Right. And so, but it always seems like the numbers for that, no matter who you put on it, are more lackluster than they would be if you did the same fight on, like, Super Bowl weekend or something. So, I don't know. Maybe it's a kind of cutting your losses kind of thing. But... I understand the the question here, and I also thought it was weird. The and I'm glad uh, Richard Hayes pointed out the that ESPN feature story on her, in which she kind of goes off about how the motivation can't all be about money. Because it was like, man, I remember when that was a big part of your story when you first started out in Strike Force. Like, hey, you had been an Olympian who was then living in your car, and you felt like you weren't rewarded for any of the work you did, and you said, "To hell with that! I'm gonna go get that money." talked your way into the, the strike force title fight made the most of all those opportunities and it was like the rags to riches aspect of it was a big part of the story and now that you got money it seems less important right i mean that's i think you're right about that i also think that like that's a thing that we commonly see like that sort of shift of the narrative whatever it happens to be is a thing that we commonly see when a fighter who is has been on top of the world suffers a loss right they come back later uh, ready to do things differently. Now, that makes Ronda Rousey like one or two losses away from going back to basics, right? The old uh, Ronda? Yeah, just g- g- going back to her judo, whoever her childhood judo coach was, going to train with that person leading up to her next fight. So I'm not necessarily surprised by that. Uh, and I guess I'm not necessarily surprised, although I do also find it notable that she seems to be keeping uh, a lower profile for this one in terms of media engagements than she has kept for a lot of her previous fights. And I think that was one of the things that she picked out as being a distraction or being one of the things that really bothered her about that Holly Holm loss. And, and then, it seems totally legit. Yeah, absolutely. Like it, it seems like uh, she did do, she did rarely turn down a worthwhile media engagement uh, you know, it was kind of hard to get to her there toward the end, but she was always a willing and kind of generous subject with her time and, and what she was, what she would say to you if you did interview her. Uh, and I think that rightly or wrongly, parenthetically speaking, probably wrongly, uh, she felt betrayed right after the loss that, that she, that so many people, uh, made mock of her online, um, and whether or not you can blame that on the media, parenthetically, you can't. Uh, <laughs> I think that, you know, that has some of to do with it as well. Kind of like backing out of that limelight a little bit for f- either restarting her career or making this last appearance, whichever one that turns out to be. Yeah. And, you know, I was a little bit encouraged in, in reading that ESPN thing when it's talking about, okay, she's isolated herself in some mountain training camp, just going straight Rocky Four style. Uh, and then two times a day, she makes the trip out to the converted barn to train with Edmund Targaryens. And the you're like, oh, okay, all right. Dragon King. I went from being encouraged to being a little discouraged there, but I guess we'll see how it goes. Uh, and honestly, I think that 
if it seems maybe she's in a no-win situation here because if she doesn't show up and do a whole lot of interviews and do the, provide the same media presence, then people will be like, where's Ronda Rousey at? Uh, and if she does, then, and you know, if it doesn't go well for her, then people will again just trot out that line like, okay, she was way more focused on uh, you know, being in front of the cameras and she should have been training, should have been working on her jab or whatever. Uh, as far as the question of is the mainstream mega jacked and we don't realize it, I do still think that there's a power in Ronda Rousey's name alone uh, that regardless of anything else, like people who don't need to see these ads, if they just hear Ronda Rousey is fighting, they'll show up for that one even if they won't show up for any other fights. I just wonder, it seems like that must have taken some kind of hit after you go out there and you get beat up and then you disappear for as long as she has. Like, it yeah. seems like some of that interest must have cooled. Yeah, and, and like we said before, this is going to be a kind of weird one being on Friday night, not necessarily being on the, you know, in the normal time slot of the UFC pay-per-view event. So in some ways, uh, you got a couple of few obstacles to overcome here if you are the UFC trying to sell this thing. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see how it works out just in terms of, of, you know, the ability to sell it, let alone what actually happens inside the cage uh, once Ronda Rousey makes her return. So I think that those will all be storylines that we are watching before and after UFC 207 once once it all goes down. Um, that's going to do it for Listener Mail this week. If you have questions, comments, concerns that you want to air to the Co-Main Event podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can pick up or sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on news and notes that we miss when we're not recording the podcast from Tuesday to Friday. News always breaks. Something always happens. It's short. It's informative. We would like to think that it's funny. And if you don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we're going to get started with round number one. Ben, the UFC on Fox 22 main card looked like an event that the UFC wanted to use to try to showcase a new generation of stars, so to speak, in front of its network TV audience, with the exception, obviously, of Uriah Faber's retirement fight tucked in there against Brad Pickett. Uh, and I think you can also make the pretty easy case that they went 0-3 in these fights in terms of who the UFC wanted to promote and wanted to win. Well, you're uh, saying, are you including Mike Perry in that list? Yes, absolutely. You think Mike Perry is one of the ones that they really wanted to push hard? Yes, I do. Otherwise, I don't know why he would be undefeated and on the main card of this Fox broadcast. I mean, Mike Perry, if you uh, ignore the out-of-the-cage stuff, which the UFC has perennially been perfectly happy to do with a lot of different fighters, I think you can argue pretty easily that Mike Perry looks like the UFC wants fighters to look. He's out there with the tattoos, with the crazy attitude, with the just-let-me-bang-bro style. And uh, I think they like that stuff, man. You think how they want fighters to look is with one tattoo across their stomach that says God's gift and then their nickname tattooed above their eye. Yes. With a, like in a certain in a certain case. Yeah, I think, I think so. they put this fight on there uh, as the first fight on the main card 
the same way they do with a lot of the pay-per-views where they want to rock them, sock them type shit to open the, the show. I don't think that it was, not, it was quite as much of a, here's who we think is going to win and, and position that for us going forward. I think that they wanted more of a uh, stand-up firefight to get people jacked right off the bat and suck you into the broadcast. And unfortunately for them, Lanjo Ban was just not, not trying to hear that. I mean, I think you're right about the stylistic matchup, but I also think that they thought Mike Perry was going to win this thing. He was the favorite coming in. I think that you put him on TV to knock somebody out. I'm surprised that you don't think that. Like, I mean, that seems perfectly obvious. But to I, me. it seems to me like I understand what you're saying with Sage Northcutt and Paige Van Zant. Them, they clearly see a big long future. Mike Perry, I think his his value to the UFC that they see, and especially in this situation, is he will go out there and throw them bungalows. And as long as somebody's somebody gets knocked out, somebody gets rocked out there, I don't think that they would have been too particular about who it was. Anyway, I think you're wrong. Mike Perry, like they're trying to serve different needs to the fan base here. Mike Perry looks like a dude, like you want a mean, nasty, tatted up MMA fighter that is easy to dislike who goes out there and knocks people out. Especially if he knocks out a male model. Is that what you're saying? I, th- I feel like it burned especially bad for Mike Perry to lose to a male model. I bet you. <laughs> I bet you're right about that. Uh, all right. Well, let's shift gears here after uh, you surprised me with that flawed argument of yours uh let's talk about sage northcutt and Paige van zant who both lost in their co-main event and main event fights uh in this uh, in this event felt like maybe they went to the well one too many times with the page and sage show here yeah i mean i think that they we we should probably separate them and in our minds, as much as the UFC is trying to get us not to separate them, trying to get us to think of them as a package deal, the blontourage, as you dubbed them, uh, and, you know, again, putting them on the same card, and you, you pair them even right together. Like any other card, Uriah Faber gets the, at least the, you know, meaningless honor of the co-main event because of, you know, it's his retirement fight in his hometown. You know, he, he would at least get that, but you didn't want to separate Page and Sage, man. It'd be like taking, like, two kittens from the shelter and sending them to different homes like you wanted to keep them together and it seems to me like you're at some point it gets weird like we we are thinking of them too much and thinking of their fortunes as too entwined because i think that they are they do have different things going on here like i think what we saw from Paige van zant even when she lost that rose nama Yunus fight was any questions about her heart or her willingness to fight you know, you can say that her skills aren't where they should be, that she still has a lot to learn, and that was evident again in this fight. But one of those people was trying to fight the choke until she slipped into unconsciousness, and the other person got stuck and was clueless right there and, and, and tapped kind of right away. There's different stuff going on with Paige and Sage. I guess. I mean, <laughs> I, if, if we're still going to do the thing where we give Paige Van Zant tons of credit for having a lot of heart and being choked unconscious... Sure, man. Whatever. Like, I mean, I I understand. I always say that when somebody has given up fighting the choke and they just let themselves be choked unconscious to prove what a badass they are, then fine. But she was working on that choke the entire time and didn't want to give up. Uh, and you know, the same thing we saw in that Rose Nama Yunus fight, where she was beaten up kind of from the word go, had plenty of opportunities to quit in that fight if she wanted to, and she didn't want to. Uh, and what we've seen from Sage Northcutt when he has faced any adversity in the octagon is that he folds up kind of quickly. Yeah, I will give you that. Sage Northcutt now uh, twice has tapped out pretty quickly uh, to 
uh, rear naked or two chokes, the arm triangle choke that that Brian Barberina got in got him into probably even more uh, of an example of that than the rear naked choke that that Mickey Gall got him with. Uh, and I think that that is notable. And I think, you know, for Sage Northcutt to come into the UFC uh, with just a handful of fights, I think he had four or five fights before he got signed and, and made his debut at UFC 192. Uh, I think that you can make the case that that probably wasn't the best thing for the guy to jump right into to the the highest level of competition uh, and, and try to make his way there. And, and you know, especially at a couple of different weight classes that are just stocked with killers, either at 170 where he's now lost twice, uh, or at 155 where where you know I think the the best the most positive thing that you can say about Sage Northcutt being at 155 is that there should be a lot of dudes for him to fight uh, of various levels of competition. So well, if you if you do need to keep him away from the the upper echelon, maybe you have the chance to do it. Whereas if Sage Northcutt was a was a heavyweight, you know. He wouldn't have that opportunity, but that's obviously a double-edged sword for Sage Northcutt because he's fighting in the most competitive division in the UFC. Well, he's also, you know, he's a strong, athletic dude, and if he can get a little bit more of that advantage going down to lightweight, then he can maybe exploit that a little more because that seems to be what he's getting by on a lot is athleticism uh, and just kind of his ability to, to physically get out of situations that, you know, he his lack of experience put him in. But then again, you know, when you lose to a guy like Mickey Gall, who also says he's going to drop down to lightweight, you got to think, well, if guys like that are going to be down there, then it's not necessarily a solution just to, to drop weight and figure that's going to solve all your problems. Uh, I, I wondered though, what we were going to do when you go out there and clearly you, if you're the UFC, you want page and sage to come out on top. Those are your, those are your people. That's who you think is the future, or at least that's everything you're doing has told us that that's what you think you want the future to be. And then they both lose, you know, both get, get beaten pretty soundly. And so then you end up with Michelle Watterson and Mickey Gall. And this is one of the things we were saying before this event was that it at least on paper looks like the kind of matchups where whoever wins, you ought to be able promotionally to work with it. You know, Michelle Watterson uh, is a more proven fighter than Paige Van Zandt. You know, if you're really concerned about the looks of the, the female fighters as far as marketability, she's certainly not bad to look at. She has a, probably a better, you know, backstory that is when you're going to be running your promo packages before the fights. Uh, Mickey Gall also is just like a young cocky dude who beat up the pro wrestler. Like you ought to be able to work with them yeah. as e like you, you don't even really have to change your narratives that much. So is that what's going to happen? Because when I look and see Michelle Watterson making 15 and 15 for a fight like this, I'm thinking something's got to change there. Yeah. You, I mean, you, that would be the smart thing to do, right? Would be just kind of take what you're given and try to promote that, which frankly, historically is how successful mixed martial arts promotion has gone. The problem, as we've said all along, with choosing who you want to win and then having these events is that sometimes you go well win three. And then, I mean, more often than not, I would say when we've or seen, two, when we've, we, we, man, you are so fucking crazy <laughs> about that. that this is weird because you just usually are not this just flat wrong about something. Yeah. So it's notable. To usually me. you're, you're not that wrong either, but this time, this time this happens. This is, I, I, I'm a little bit flabbergasted. You kind of like you took seem... this whole round and threw it off. Because one of, of us your, did do that. One of us has done that. Because of your weird insistence that the UFC doesn't like Mike Perry, even though he continues to get high-profile chances to knock people out. So, returning to Michelle Watterson and Mickey Gall. Right. I think Mickey Gall is kind of more interesting at this point. Like, he is... 
I can't think of a guy in the UFC that has a stranger career right now than Mickey Gall because he's out there with what, like four professional fights, three of them in the UFC. And think about the three that he has. One against, you know, a kind of uh, MMA journalist slash fighter who is like kind of like a part-time fighter who was selected strictly so Mickey Gall could beat him uh, and fight his way into the CM Punk fight. Then you got the CM Punk one where he fights a guy with no real MMA experience an old pro wrestler who he just overwhelms. And then, you know, like one of the only people like younger and with around as little meaningful experience as he has at the top level, Sage Northcutt, where he goes out there and exploits his complete lack of a ground game. So you still, it feels like you still aren't exactly sure how good he is. He seems to definitely have a lot of potential. And yet, it would not be out of the question to see him, you know, if he really does drop to light, wait, wait, he says, get thrown in the shark tank there and just get eaten up because he's not there yet. Yeah, he hasn't really fought anybody, like you said, and, and you see him out there. He's a good athlete, and clearly he has uh, good ground skills, but, uh, you know, the, he's still a, a pretty big unknown and a guy who, all things being equal, wouldn't be in the UFC yet. But but there he is out there trying to make his way. Uh, and in that regard, I felt like it was really weird for him to try to call out Dan Hardy, even though Dan <laughs> he got Har- the wolf heart, man. Yeah. Come on. Even though Dan Hardy hasn't fought since 2012 and, and is trying to make his comeback from this uh, heart condition that kind of cut short his otherwise, uh, you know, successful MMA career had been the number one contender at welterweight now wants to return at lightweight and Mickey Gall calls him out. Like that was totally out of the blue. And I guess. From a Mickey Gall standpoint, you can kind of see how you could talk yourself into thinking that made sense, but it would certainly be an enormous leap up in competition for him. And if Dan Hardy didn't eat him alive, I would be really surprised. It just seems so weirdly specific. Like, I yeah, can't he, well, see how he talked himself into it. Like, how you would have to even you'd be paying really close attention to the MMA news to even feel like it was a possibility of Dan Hardy fighting anybody. He right. got the wolf heart, Chad. Well, I mean, you must wolf heart. He must have been paying really close attention to the MMA news because otherwise you like he announced that he wanted to go to lightweight and then in the next breath called out Dan Hardy, who had previous to this has been a welterweight and has only said that he wants to be a lightweight upon his return from this protracted absence because of medical reasons. So like I assume Mickey Gall is probably reading all those, the news stories and, and knew what was going on, but still a very weird call out for him. One that just doesn't make much sense for me. Although if you're Mickey Gall and your thing is that you call somebody out after every fight and that's how you've made this career for yourself in the UFC, I don't know who would be a better choice right off the top of my head because you're kind of in the same boat that Sage Northcutt is in a lot of ways. Yeah, well, and I guess we're always talking about how frustrating it is when you get in that moment that you know is going to come in the post-fight interview when you win and they ask who you want next and you just go, ah, jeez, oh, man, I don't know. Whoever, uh, somebody in the top 15, I don't know, whatever the UFC wants. And it's like you... There's no way you could have not known that this was a possibility of you being asked this question and you act like you just can't, you could not have possibly have predicted that this would come up. Well, that's going to do it for round number one. Sir Nigel Longstock's here. We're going to do uh, Master Tweet Theater. It's been a couple weeks since we've got the chance to catch up with him. That starts right now.
Well, it's that time again. We welcome back friend of the show, noted theatricalist, Sir Nigel Longstock. Sir Nigel, how are you? Good day to you, sir. I am sweltering in this 25-degree heat. Yeah, I figured it'd be hard on a man of your disposition, so we say. Indeed, indeed it has. My hair has gotten all kinky. Let's just leave that one right there and proceed no further. Uh, have you brought in a theme to half-acidly stick to? Yes, sir, I have. The theme is tested. People who have been tested in one way or another. And do you want to provide another disclaimer about how many of the five tweets will actually stick to that? Or, or fact, is that part of the fun? We just get to guess. In fact, thanks to the broad meaning of tested, 100% of these tweets adhere. We shall see. Mm, indeed we shall, sir. Whenever you're ready. <clears throat> yes, let us begin. <laughs> this episode of Master Tweet Theater is brought to you by Cowgirl Astronaut Cigarettes, the cigarette for grown women. Cowgirl astronauts have all the blood-quickening nicotine of cowboy astronauts, but they come in flavors adult women know and love, such as mocha, merlot, and bitter disappointment. Whether you're waiting for your boyfriend to propose or watching the man you trained become your manager, why not calm down with a cowgirl astronaut? They'll remind you that childhood is long gone, and so are those girlish dreams. Get along, little missy. It's dinner time on the moon. God. So the cigarette company's back, huh? Oh, yes, yes. They, their injunction is cleared up and they can advertise on the airwaves again. Great. I'm sure we're all very thrilled with that news. <clears throat> yes, let us begin. Remember, the theme is tested. I, thanks, I remember. Good. You look like you had forgotten. <clears throat> Tweet the first. Nothing like USADA deciding to join me on my date night with at Mighty Wife sunglasses emoji. All right. Well, this one's pretty easy, isn't it? We know who likes to tell us all about USADA getting all up in his shit. And also, who do you think might have a wife with the Twitter handle Mighty Wife? I think it might be Demetrius Johnson. The tested uh, theme, quite literal yeah. here for the first one. You didn't see that coming, did you? Yeah, I, I mean, it's got to be Demetrius Johnson, right? It is. It is Demetrius Johnson appending a video of him explaining how he's going to go piss in a gas station. Wow, so they, they hit him up while he was out on the town? The video appears to be him in front of a convenience store? Is it? Does he get tested more than other people, or is he just way better at making it into a news story every single time he's tested? I think the issue is that he's a social media wizard, if you will. So everything he does, when he plays video games, it's on Twitter. That's true. Hmm. Tweet the second. FML left my iPad on my Delta flight home. Monkey covering eyes emoji. Tested. This person is being tested by, I guess, their own carelessness? Um. Monkey covering eyes emoji. That feels like Met Mitrione to me. That's what it feels like. You think he was over there in Italy for the Bellator event? It could be any number of places, really. They were in they were in Ireland, by the way. Whatever. Uh, I'm gonna go Brian Barberina here. <laughs> All right. Both fine guesses, both grounded in deductive reasoning, and both wrong. It is Brad Pickett. Oh. Brad Pickett being he, tested. Now see. Further tested. He lost that fight. He got beat down, and then he loses his iPad. I think it would have been easier for us to get that one had it been read in Brad Pickett's accent. Yeah, you want to take a crack at that one? You know, I really can't. 
I've tried. Like the Welsh is just it's it's very difficult, sir. Yeah, and if you're not wearing the hat, it loses like fifty percent of it. Yes, it's true. It's not one of the seven major dialects. <laughs> well, that that's be its own show, I'm sure. <clears throat> Tweet the third. I promise my next one will be kill or be killed. Hashtag doubt me. Hashtag hate me. Hashtag watch me prevail. So now it sounds like we're dealing with somebody who has been tested just by defeat and not by the also defeat and followed by losing expensive electronics. I'm going to say this one is Brian Barberina. Huh. Well, that would be interesting. Uh, hmm. I don't know. Maybe Mike Perry? Okay. Both fine guesses and one completely correct. It is Platinum Mike Perry. Oh, man. I'm impressed, Chad. Well, see, I ran down the list of fights at uh, UFC on Fox 22. Okay. In my head. You're sure there wasn't any like other kind of emojis that might have given this way, like a burning cross emoji or anything like that? <laughs> Sadly, there was not a burning career emoji <laughs> is what you mean. Okay. All right. Hmm. Tweet the fourth. I'm the type of guy that takes his GF to get cookies, then take her to the gym with me. Tweeter's name for president 2020. Okay, how the hell is that tested? Well, he's testing the waters with a presidential <laughs> rock. <laughs> you were just waiting for me to ask that, weren't you? In fact, I was completely unprepared. It's a trap. You set up a trap. Chad, do you have any thoughts here? So wait, this is a person who tweeted about themselves with their own Twitter handle in the third person? Correct. He said, like, my name, but he used his own name, for president 2020. And someone who knows when the next presidential election is. So. <laughs> what are you thinking? Uh, and has a girlfriend. So an unmarried, that we know of, fighter, referring to himself or herself Could in the third him? person. He already said him. He did? Yeah. Yes, okay. that was a clue. <laughs> Ah, uh, I'm stumped. You have to go. You go first. I always go first, but that's all right. Chris Levin. That's not bad. That's pretty good. Um, I am gonna go Mickey Gall. Okay, I man. Does Mickey Gall know when the next election is? That's a toss-up. Both fine guesses, both likely to invite their girlfriend to the gym, and both wrong. It is Derek Brunson. Okay. Well, there was no way we were going to talk nope. ourselves into Derek Brunson. No way. No way to reason is our this, way into that one. Is this two weeks in a row for Derek Brunson or oh, two, yes. two Master Tweet Theaters in a row? It would be every episode in a row if he would, if he would only tweet more. Well, I tell you what. There's a long time to go between now and 2020, and just keep your head up, Derek. It, Crazy things could happen. Beast 2020. Hmm. Tweet the fifth. This tweet is in response to another tweet, which I will read now. The tweet is from Ariel Helwani. One of the pillars of MMA, Uriah Faber, the last of MMA's true pioneers, calls it a career tonight. And this tweeter responds, far from the last. Wait, what? Uh, Ariel Helwani calls Uriah Faber the last of MMA's true pioneers, and this tweeter replies, far from the last. Okay. Um, How's that? Who is yeah. tested there? Who's being tested? Well, no one. Our patients? <laughs> 
80% compliance. Our ability to spot whether you're screwing us again when Sir it comes Nigel to... Nigel earns another gentleman's B in migrating. <laughs> okay. Uh, Diego Sanchez. I'm going to go Chael Sonnen here. Okay. Both fine guesses, both pioneers, and both wrong. It is Phil Baroni. Wow. Really? The pioneer Philip Baroni. So you're going to bring the poet Philip Baroni back to Master Tweet Theater with a boring ass, far from the last reply. I see what's happening here is Sir Nigel is testing our willingness to replace his ass <laughs> with just some hobo off the street. Or our just our willingness to never have him back. <laughs> I thought it was touching. Phil sees Uriah Faber retire. He starts reflecting on his own career. He gets angry at someone who didn't mention him. <laughs> well, now that you explain it like that. Uh, I guess that's it for Master Sweet Theater. What is you got going on, Sir Nigel? You know, it's funny you should ask, sir. I've just finished shooting an exciting film about a populist firebrand who forms a powerful political machine out of the aliens secretly living in and around New Orleans. I see. And what's it called? It's called All the King's Men in Black. <laughs> And what role do you play? I play Murray, a horse with important documents stashed in his head. Well, that was Master Sweet Theater, and that was Sir Nigel Longstock. Thank you, sir. The California man has called it quits after 44 professional fights at the age of 37. He goes out on a fairly predictable decision victory over Brad Pickett in his hometown. Uh, just seems like your, your consummate forward-thinking businessman Uriah Faber really planned out this exit in true Faberish fashion. And it also felt like, I don't know, I'm, I, I guess I expected it to feel like a bigger deal. Uh, when a guy like Uriah Faber, who has been kind of a pioneer, who has really, you know, a lot of the guys in the, the lighter weight classes, the fact that they're even in the UFC, they owe to Uriah Faber. And it just kind of felt like, oh, yeah, this other thing that was happening on this card. Yeah. And like we said in the, in the, you know, in round number one, I think it felt a little bit like he got swept up, not necessarily in page and sage mania, but a little bit and swept up kind of in the, like minutia of how this fight card came together. Uh, but it still felt like a fitting exit for the California man, Uriah Faber. Uh, it's kind of staggering when you think 44, I mean, let's just call it 45 professional fights, right? Like, uh, uh to make it a nice round number. Uh, and a guy who, who was the best fighter in the world under 155 pounds for a really, really long time. Uh, and a guy who was one of the more marketable fighters at those lower weight classes for a really long time. Uh, and a guy who, as he will remind you every chance he gets, was in fact the world champion for a while when the WEC, uh, featherweight title was the, the, the one that was recognized as the top title at that weight in the world. Um, and if this sticks, man, like if this is Uriah Faber's last fight and he, uh, goes on to another stage in his life and, and find success, you gotta say, hard to imagine really doing it any better than what Uriah Faber is doing here, despite the fact that, you know, prior to this win over Brad Pickett, he ends on a one and three skid. Other than that, like, it feels like Uriah Faber got out at pretty much the right time. He wins his, 
retirement fight in his hometown. And, and you gotta, you believe, given everything we know about the guy that he's got irons in the fire business wise. So like, you know, more power to him as far as I'm concerned. See, all that is what makes me have a little more hope that the retirement will stick because I think when you're looking at the, the different variables that go into those retirements, like we've said before, anytime somebody just kind of decides impulsively in the cage, like because they lost, that's it. I'm done. Uh, that always makes you question it. Somebody who might have to return for the money also makes you question it. Somebody who retires fairly young when it seems like they physically are going to, you know, especially if they take a year or two off, are going to start to feel pretty good again and think, hey, I can still do it. All those things kind of absent here with Uriah Faber. He really planned this one out well in advance. He even picked his location. Uh, he definitely doesn't seem like he's going to be a guy who ends up needing the money. And especially for as long as he did it, 37 feels like about when you'd, you'd want to call it quits. I mean, he said that it's not like he's super banged up or anything, but he also seems like a smart enough dude who doesn't have to run it absolutely into the ground to realize that it's time to stop. Yeah, I wonder for people who are only familiar with Uriah Faber, say, post-WEC 48, where he loses to uh, Jose Aldo in uh, what I think was the maybe first and only WEC pay-per-view yeah. event. Uh, you know, because if you, if that was kind of like the first time that you encountered him and, and, you know, even before that, maybe losing the, the featherweight title to Mike Brown back at WEC 36, like, I, I assume you have just have a different view of the guy than if you were one of the like handful of hardcore fans, uh, that really stuck with the, the WEC during those like 2006, 2007 days where Uriah Faber defended that title, like, six or seven times in a row before losing it. Like he was, he was frankly as dominant as it gets back in those days. Uh, and then obviously wasn't able to replicate that success later on in the UFC and kind of got, uh, passed by, by Jose Aldo, who then be himself became the most dominant featherweight and probably still the greatest featherweight of all time. Uh, you know, just kind of like a, maybe a story of almost two different careers for Uriah Faber, the pre UFC days and then the UFC days. You know, when you were saying the thing, uh, Hey, with the people who only know him from that first Jose Aldo fight and you make it sound like they are relative newcomers when really that was like six and a half years ago. Can you believe that? Right. Yeah. Like you were, you probably feel like you're an OG MMA fan. If you started watching this stuff around that time, there's gotta be a whole lot of other people who are just like, Oh yeah, Uriah Faber. Yeah, he's the guy who beat uh Ivan Menjivar, right? Yeah. Well, and Uriah Faber had already been in the game for seven years by 2010, which you know is not a it's not a lifetime for sure, but that's a long ass time to have already been in the game by that point. Uh, you know, uh, I remember the first time I became aware of Uriah Faber was that fight uh with Tyson Griffin at uh gladiators quest gladiator challenge gladiator challenge back in 2005 uh you know and that was all he had already been you know he was already eight no at that point so a long and storied career for uriah favor before even arriving in the ufc which i always wonder if you ought to feel bad for a guy for a like one of these quote-unquote pioneers that has their most success before their weight class or before the sport really hits the big time. But, you know, even though he didn't win the UFC title or even have the most success amongst, amongst featherweights and bantamweights in the UFC, Uriah Faber 
I don't, I don't know that you can necessarily argue with the life that he built for himself as a UFC fighter either. Well, yeah, and just the life in general where he's got, you know, enough money from outside stuff. He founded a, a successful team, one of the few people to have a successful team and actually be an active fighter at the same time for a little while. Like, usually you just, you don't see that happen very much. Uh, so yeah, like, he's definitely not one of the ones you want to feel bad for. I remember the, the when I first kind of became aware of him, he was one of the reasons like that I even became aware of the lighter weight classes, like under 155 pounds, that there was stuff going on there. It was because you would hear about Uriah Faber. And I think that it's easy for a lot of the people to forget that, especially a lot of the, you know, if you think now of who is uh, at least coming from under 155 pounds, the big stars in the UFC, and you think of Conor McGregor, and then, you know, you might start to think about uh, the other guys around there like Dominic Cruz and and see some of those weight classes starting to to develop a little more momentum and you forget that how long the UFC was even resistant to the idea of it and it was guys like Uriah Faber that helped helped change the minds like he was kind of he did for those weight classes what Ronda Rousey did for the women's division in the eyes of the UFC uh and a lot of people will probably forget that but it's still meaningful yeah and i commented on this on twitter on saturday night and it's kind of a small thing but when you think about this sport that takes such a tremendous toll on the people that uh, that practice it. Uriah Faber is out here at 37 years old, 44 fights deep in his UFC career, and he looks physically exactly the same yeah. as when he walked onto the big stage in like 2005, 2006. Well, uh, kind of remarkable. In fairness, he did start out looking rather cherubic. So now, like yeah, he's, now that yeah. he's aged, he just he would look like a normal person. Yes, he, yeah, he he's definitely aged. Obviously, he's been in the in the game for a long time, but he doesn't have that like classic. You look at this dude and you think, oh, your fl- your face is flat yeah. from being punched, flat or and whatever. dented, and he like it's just gotten whiter. Yeah, that that has not happened to him. So hey, that's a win if you're your eye favorite. <laughs> Let's do. Are you fucking kidding me, Ben? And then we will move on to round number three. Ben, what's your, are you fucking kidding me this week? Well, I know we talked a little bit about page and sage in round one, but I noticed on this broadcast, especially we seem to be pushing hard the angle of page Van Zant having overcome a lot of adversity yeah. because she was bullied in high school. And I even caught a moment early on in the broadcast where in plugging a, a video package for it, Mike Goldberg and his typical Mike Goldberg voice pointed out that she had gone to three different high schools and i understand like now she's like a anti-bullying advocate which is a good message you might also i mean there are people within the ufc organization who could stand to hear that message from Paige van zandt uh but it seems like maybe counterproductive to be taking somebody like Paige van zandt who seems to be a beneficiary of a genetic lottery in a lot of ways and seems to have things really going her way and to try to take like the one bad thing that's ever happened to her and use that as a overcoming adversity narrative, especially when, you know, you could go down the list on the UFC roster and be like, oh, yeah, was it difficult to make new friends at your new high school? Mursad Bektik remembers that from when he was a child refugee from an actual war-torn country. Uh, and he's definitely not the only one. You got a lot of those kind of real adversity stories to tell. So maybe compared to that, the high school bullying thing is not that huge a deal. You fucking kidding me? You fucking kidding me? Well, Ben, in that same vein, my are you fucking kidding me this week goes out to Fox, not only for allowing Skip Bayless to yammer uninformedly at me before the evening's main event about how he's afraid for Ronda Rousey's safety or whatever, 
but also for arranging a sit-down interview between Aaron Andrews and Paige Van Zandt. Uh, Paige Van Zandt, by the way, gets a special secondary, are you fucking kidding me, for being all smiley and excited to talk to Aaron Andrews, while meanwhile, nine, town, nine times out of ten, acts like she would rather pull out her own teeth with a rusty pair of pliers than talk to the MMA media. We see you, Paige. We see you. But look... I know why they do this, right? They're trying to make MMA and the UFC look like a big deal, which is an agenda that I tacitly approve of. But this kind of shit always is so transparent whenever they try to do it. We all know that Skip Bayless and Aaron Andrews don't give a shit about the UFC, or at least they didn't until they went to work for Fox. Uh, and if I may borrow a term from Mickey Gall, this shit corny. <laughs> the people who invest in this sport in a real way have like a shared language and a shared understanding of what is what. And even though we disagree often at times, and even though these people may be very good at, at what they do, uh, they don't share that language. And so for those of us who watch this sport all the time, we can sniff that out as soon as they start talking. So you put Aaron Andrews out there and you put Skip Bayless out there and it just looks fake to me. It looks staged. And the real shame of it is, like, there are people in this industry who can do those jobs. You could have Paige Van Zant talk to, uh, to Megan O'Leary. You could have Paige Van Zant out there with Ariel Helwani if you hadn't fired him for being too good at his job. This other shit? Are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? That's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number two. Well, Ben, I suppose that this is a good news, bad news situation. The good news being that we found out last week that the UFC is opening up a new weight class for its female fighters and bringing the women's featherweight division into the fold inside the octagon. So that's good news. Yay! The bad news, or I mean, I don't even know you'd say bad. The weird news. Bizarre news. I guess you could say is that... The inaugural fight for the women's 145-pound championship will be between Holly Holm and Jermaine Durandamy at UFC 208. The Iron Lady. The Iron Lady, indeed. A uh, lot of ins and outs, a lot of goings-on here in this story, but obviously very uh, noticeable by her absence here is Chris Cyborg Justino. Yeah, and, you know... I feel of two minds on this one, because normally, if it seems like the UFC is screwing somebody, I'll be the first one to say, hey, the UFC is screwing this person. But here, it seems like that's only a partial explanation, because it seems like the UFC did want Cyborg to be in that 145-pound title fight. Clearly, it seemed to make the division, basically, for her, because we're doing these 140-pound catchweights. Uh, you know, basically creating your own catchweight division just for her to fight in. Uh, she said she couldn't do that anymore, that that was too much of a, like a taxing experience on her body getting down to that weight. And so they say, fine, we'll create the actual 145-pound division, even though there are legitimate concerns about whether there's enough talent to fill it. And they say, all right, how about 
10 weeks, I think is what the, she said that they offered her, uh, about in 10 weeks. And she said, no, I'll, I can't fight till March. They wanted to do this fight in February. Uh, and, you know, so it seems like you've asked for one thing. You asked for 145 pound division. They said yes. Then you want to be on the title fight. They say yes. You want more notice. They say yes. They give you 10 weeks notice, which is pretty good notice for the UFC for something like this. I mean, I know a lot of people say they want 12 weeks, but it seems like two weeks is a, a small time to get hung up on over here. But then it does seem also the reason why I'm of two minds on it is because you've created this division just for her. You We waited so long for this to happen, and you couldn't wait another month. Like, it just had to be on this fight card. There was no option to have, you know, to push it at all. It's, again, where it seems like the UFC has a situation where they put it on the calendar and the fighters and the circumstances will have to adjust to the schedule rather than the other way around. And it does seem like a, like a, maybe a little bit of, okay, fuck you, we've had it with all your demands. We're, we're bending over backwards here to help you out and you still won't budge at all. So screw you, we're just going to move on without you. Yeah, it's an awkward look for everybody, for sure. And like you said, it feels like the UFC has tied its own hands a little bit, both with its schedule and I think we're left to assume with this idea that it needs to make its earning goals for 2017 in order to fully cash in on the $4.2 billion price tag for which it sold the company to WME IMG this year. And, you know, that just kind of makes it feel a little cash desperate. Uh, and other than that, I can't figure out why you would, you know, hold off for literally years on creating the women's 145 pound division. And then when you decide to do it, you absolutely must do it in February and not March, period, full stop, end of story. Now, that said, like you said, it's also a weird look for Chris Cyborg Justino, uh, who we all know is the top 145 pound women's fighter in the world and has been for a number of years. Uh, it's a strange look for her not to be in this fight, and it's a strange look for her to allegedly have either turned down a number of fights that they offered her or, you know, was just very insistent about doing this at 12 weeks notice instead of 10 weeks notice, et cetera, et cetera. Well, well especially because what's going to change in those two weeks? Yeah, I know. Yeah, it's like if your body's not up to it because of the, the rigors of the last weight cut. I don't know how an extra two weeks is going to make that huge difference. I mean, you'd just be guessing that it would. You, we wouldn't know for sure. She mentioned that she was dealing with some depression, which that can be serious stuff. But again, I don't know how an extra two weeks is going to snap you out of that. Uh, if it's the weight cut, I mean, if you can't make the weight in 10 weeks, then I feel like you you have a problem somewhere. Either you, the problem is with the weight class you're trying to fight at or the lifestyle that you're living uh, that gets you too far off of weight because 10 weeks ought to be enough time to just make weight. Yeah. Because this is Chris Cyborg and she has such a well-established track record of being the most dominant force at 145 pounds. I'm kind of willing to give her the benefit of the doubt, even though I agree that this is uh, a strange position for her to be in. Uh, I don't know her body. I don't know what it takes for her to recover from one thing. Uh, don't smirk like that. I saw that. Nobody uh, either. Uh, I don't know what it takes for her to recover from the weight cut or the fights or whatever. I don't believe for one minute that she would run from any matchup at that weight in the world. Oh, definitely not. That can't be it. And so, I guess just for now, I got to give her the benefit of the doubt that she can't be ready or wouldn't be ready in that time frame. I don't know why else she would make such a sticking point out of it. Now, I think things get really weird 
once we look ahead after this this UFC 208 fight because people are stopping well short of saying that Cyborg will fight the winner here. Like, let, you know, assuming that Holly Holm, uh, that this thing plays out according to chalk and Holly Holm emerges with the women's featherweight championship, you would think that she would fight Cyborg Justino as, uh, to in another pay-per-view event. But the specter of Ronda Rousey looms large here. In fact, I think Mike Winklejohn was quoted today, uh, Holly Holmes' trainer from the Jackson Winklejohn Academy was quoted as saying, if Holly and Ronda both win their fights, they're definitely fighting for the 145-pound title, which from a promotional standpoint is really easy to believe, right? Yeah. Well, and it, it that would be, again, like we talked about, like one of the most UFC things ever, that you could see that narrative playing out so easily and the just the way it would make cyborg's head explode because for one thing they talked before about a fight between cyborg and holly holm and holly holm's camp i I believe offered her 138 they wanted her to get down to 138 for the fight which is basically like saying like we don't want the fight we don't want it because you know she's not going to take that like she's practically talking about how she's dying to get to 140. So 138 is not going to happen. But then you go up to 145 to, to fight somebody else when there's a belt on the line. Uh, and then if you turn around and fight Ronda Rousey, who had also been saying that she would not go up to 145, that it was 135 or nothing for her, if that fight were to happen at you know 145 or at some other weight or something, then it would just... Cyborg's sense of indignation would be off the charts at that point. Yeah, like I I made the joke when they first announced the 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 initial fight that it seems bad to start the the women's 145 pound weight class without Cyborg Justino in the title fight, but starting the women's 145 pound weight class with a Cyborg Justino who's really really mad seems interesting from a fan point of view. It would be the most UFC thing of all time if after years of not being in the UFC, Cyborg Justino was in the UFC but fought only at 140 pounds, and then once they created this women's featherweight championship, that she never fought for it. That they were just like re- reached a promoter impasse, and they were like, "All right, well, we're done with you. Go back to Invicta and be the rightful 100 women's 145 pound champion over there." I can't imagine that that will happen. You got to think that as long as she's an active fighter, she will end up fighting for the UFC women's featherweight championship. But this is just a weird situation. I think eventually, though, the math problem of revenue and ratings and stuff is going to win out because she is a draw. Like yeah. when she fights, people do what? People remain interested in her. And especially if you get the opportunity to make one of those fights of you know Holly Holm versus Cyborg or Ronda Rousey versus Cyborg and you have to pay somebody a little extra money in order to go through with it. I think you do just because it's. Like one of the biggest fights that you could possibly make in the women's division at this point. If we, speaking of somebody's indignation, though, if Ronda Rousey does, you know, she goes out there and fights Amanda Nunes, and that's not like a foregone conclusion that she'll win that, but, you know, a lot of things seem to work in her favor in that matchup. Uh, if she's got the rust knocked off and is ready to fight when she goes in there. So she, say she gets her belt back, then, you know, say Holly Holm does beat the Iron Lady and they rematch, and say even Ronda Rousey manages to fix the problems in the first fight, and defeats Holly Holm, and then she gets to do the Conor McGregor thing of being a two-weight champion, well then, you know who's going to be sitting around waiting to see when it becomes relinquish a clock, and is going to get super mad if you don't treat Ronda Rousey the same way you treated him when it comes to that stuff, is your boy Conor McGregor. Yeah. Then things get really fun. Yeah, I think things are already pretty fun in that relationship. Uh, 
it would also be kind of like a check your watch and tap on it to make sure it hasn't stopped moment, right? Because Ronda Rousey, the whole time we were trying to set up a fight between her and Cyborg Justino was kind of like, no, I'm not going to fight her at 145 pounds. So in a text to Dana White and say it's time to get back to work kind of way, uh, it would be weird to have her go up to 145 and then just fight Holly Holm. And then right off into the sunset. Totally weird. All right, let's do just saying stuff. Uh, then we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, you mentioned this earlier, uh, but Michelle Watterson said today that she made 15 and 15 to win the main event of the best rated UFC on Fox event since 2014. And then said on the MMA Fortnite today that she thought that that was, quote, a little embarrassing. So the former champion from another organization, former Atomweight champion, who fights between these two weight classes, but might prefer to be an atom weight if such a weight class was available in the UFC, uh, is fighting at a straw weight, wins this high-profile fight, and gets paid a guaranteed $15,000, but makes thirty because she won. So I guess this week, I'm just saying, how much money do you think the UFC and Fox made off this thing? With all those Bud Light ads during this event? Because, and I'm just saying, as a guy who doesn't know anything about how much it costs to get your television commercials on, there's a chance that they probably made more than what they paid Michelle Watterson just from those ads of the dude running in slow motion through the convenience store with the Bud Light 12-pack tucked under his arm. And if that's the case, then I'm just saying, it's not Michelle Watterson who ought to be embarrassed, right? Just saying. It's the people who are just tossing out crumbs. Just saying. The real question is, did the actor doing the slow motion run through the convenience store make more than Michelle okay, Watterson? Well, now we're having fun. Now it's just party time over here. And if we really want to have fun, we could ask, how far would you have to go in watching Fox programming to find somebody on primetime TV on Saturday night on the Fox network who makes less than Michelle Watterson for their performance? I think you'd probably have to catch an episode of Cops. Yeah, or a college and game. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Well, Jed, my just saying stuff, I was perusing the MMA Reddit, and I saw uh, a the transcript of Anderson Silva talking to somebody about the experience of being knocked out, uh, and an interesting back and forth here. He's asked, is it worse getting knocked out or having you know people ask about it, uh, like the interviewer acknowledges he is doing over and over again? Anderson Silva answers, no, no, there will always be questions. Fans, people, they want to know what happened. But being knocked out is worse because you can't remember. There's just a blackout. And then when you wake up, you're like, huh, what happened? The fight is over? And the ref says, yeah, it's over and you lost. But how? And the ref says, you got knocked out. But how? The ref then answers, you took a big shot and fell to the mat. Interviewer, lights out? Do you even feel the pain? Silva, no, you don't feel anything. You only feel it later. And there is that old motto, cry on the bed because it's warmer. How? That's kind of sad. That's right. That old motto, cry on the bed because it's warmer. Now, I was confused about this because it seems like maybe like a Brazilian, a well-known Brazilian uh, saying. And so I asked our Brazilian correspondent, Fernanda Pretes, about it. And she said, yeah, that it's a very common uh, phrase. She was a little surprised to see it translated so literally. But that it was a thing like that your mother would say to you if you were complaining about something that wasn't going to change. And she would just say, you know. Basically, no one cares about your tears, so if you're going to cry anyway, you might as well go do it somewhere comfortable because no one cares. I'm just saying I cannot wait for the opportunity to tell my daughters to go cry on the bed because it's warmer. And I'm guessing I will get that opportunity here in 15 to 20 minutes. Oh, boy. You took the words right out of my mouth. Just I saying. can't wait to pull that out of my back pocket tonight during dinner. 
<laughs> just the look, the confused look that will come on our face is just so great. That's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We will be back next week, the day after Christmas. Uh, even though Ben Folks tried to wimp out and cancel that episode of the co-main event podcast. Many people are with their families around we, them, but that's okay. We will, in fact, record it. We will look ahead to UFC 207 and the return of Ronda Rousey. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. When you think about it, it is a warmer place to cry than pretty much anywhere. I mean, can you think of a better place to cry besides on the shoulder of the beloved continent? Easily top three places to cry.